1: to download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily
0: notifications. This is day 22. Today we'll be reading book 6, chapters 11 through 16 in the Ascension edition of the book.
1: If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick
0: look at what we are covering today. So you have become accustomed to hearing of St. Augustine delaying his conversion, burning with lust, failing to get together the plans that he has formulated with his friends, and all of that holds in this section. Uh, But, you know, one thing that requires commentary or, you know, kind of one feature of this particular reading, which is especially strange, is that his mother has arranged a marriage for him, but we hear that his prospective wife is not yet of age, that she needs two years to be of age. And you're thinking like, oh, like maybe she's like 19. Nope, she's 10. Because in the Roman Empire, a woman had to be 12 in order to get married. And then you might think to yourself, that's horrifying, which I suppose is pretty you know, it's probably a just assessment of the situation. Um, so I'm not defending the Roman practice, but, you know, to kind of pepper in some historical details. Until recent times, it was common for women to marry young and to marry men who are much older. So this was due to, you know, a shorter lifespan among women, many of whom would die in childbirth. So high rate of mortality there. Uh, perceived optimal fertility, social convention, status considerations. There are a lot of things that were in the mix. So this is kind of normal for St. Augustine. It's not normal for us. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I want to say. Okay, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. 11. Thinking about all this, I felt the greatest wonder for how long the time had been from when I was 19 years old, when I was first kindled with desire for wisdom, deciding even then that when I found her, I would abandon all the empty hopes and deceptive madness of vain desires. But behold, I was now 30 years old, stuck in the same mire, greedily desiring present things that passed away and dissipated me. All the while, however, I told myself, tomorrow I will find it. It will be fully clear and I shall then grasp it. Behold, Faustus the Manichaean will come and make everything clear. O you great men, you academicians, is it true then that no certainty can be attained for the ordering of our lives? No, let us search more diligently for it and not fall into despair. Behold, what we find in the church's books is not absurd to us now, though it once seemed absurd. Now we see the sound sense in which they must be understood." I will take my stand where, as a child, my parents placed me until I discover the clear truth. But where shall I seek it, and when? Ambrose has no leisure, nor have we any leisure to read. Where shall we find even the very books that contain this truth? Where and when shall we procure them? From whom could we borrow them? Appoint the times and order the hours for our soul to find its health." Has great hope dawned? The Catholic faith does not teach what we thought it did, what we vainly accused her of holding. Her instructed members believe that it is profane to believe that God would exist within spatial limits like a human body. In our doubt, we fail to knock so that the rest might be opened. Our students fill our morning hours, but what do we do during the rest of the day? Why not this? But when would we have time to visit our powerful friends whose favors we must ask? When would we compose texts to sell to our students? When would we refresh ourselves, resting our minds from the endless strain of our cares? Quote, May all things perish and be gone empty vanities, so that we might devote ourselves solely to the pursuit of truth. Life is wretched and death uncertain. If it suddenly were to spring upon us, in what state shall we depart from this world? And where shall we learn what we have neglected? And will we not rather suffer punishment for this negligence? Or what if death itself closes the curtain on all care and feeling? Then this must be ascertained. But God forbid that to be the case. It is no vain and empty thing that the excellent dignity of the authority of the Christian faith has spread over the whole of the world. Never would God have done such great things for us if bodily death also spelled the death of the soul." Why, then, do we delay to abandon worldly hopes and thus give ourselves completely over to seeking God and the blessed life? But wait! Even those things are pleasant. They have a sweetness which is not paltry. We must not flippantly abandon them, for we would return to them in shame. And consider now how we no longer need to strive after some station in life. And what more could we wish to have? We have a number of powerful friends If nothing else offers itself to us, but we feel much haste, then we might be a procurator with a wife of some means so that we will feel no financial burden, and this shall set the bounds of our desires. Many great men who are most deserving of imitation have given themselves to the study of wisdom in the state of marriage." While I spoke this way and wavered back and forth about these things and such winds shifted and drove my heart this way and that, time passed on while I delayed to turn to the Lord. From day to day, I put off living in you, though I did not put off dying in myself daily. Loving a happy life, I feared it in its own abode and sought it by fleeing from it. I thought I would be filled with misery unless I were embraced in female arms, and since I had not tried the medicine of your mercy, I did not think of curing that infirmity by such means. As for sexual continence, I supposed that it was in our own strength, though in myself I did not find such power, being so foolish as not to know that it is written, quote, none can be continent unless you grant it. See 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. And you would give it if, with inward groanings, I knocked at the door of your ears, and with a settled faith cast my cares upon you. 12. Indeed, Olypius kept me from marrying, claiming that if I did, we could by no means live together single-mindedly in the love of wisdom, as we long desired to do. For he himself was even then most pure on this point, in a way that aroused marvel. Indeed, this was all the more wonderful given that in his youth he had sexual experiences but did not remain stuck in that way of life, feeling instead remorse and disgust at it, thereafter living without sex up to our present day. But I opposed him with examples of married men who cherished wisdom and served God acceptably, retaining their friends with a faithful love. I greatly lacked, though, their grandeur of spirit, and, bound with the disease of the flesh and its deadly sweetness, I dragged my chains along with me, dreading for them to be loosed." And, as if he had agitated my wound, I pushed back his good words of persuasion as though they were a hand reaching out to unchain me. Moreover, through my words, the serpent spoke to Olypius and my tongue wove upon his path pleasing snares that might entangle his virtuous and free feet. For he wondered at the fact that I, for whom he felt no small esteem, would remain so fully snared by that pleasure so as to protest, as often as we discussed the matter, that I could never lead a single life. And in response to his surprise, I insisted that there was a great difference between his momentary and barely remembered knowledge of that sort of life, which he might so easily despise, and my continued acquaintance with it. I assured him that if I just joined to it the honorable name of marriage, he would then understand why I did not condemn that course of action. Thus, he desired to be married, not as one overcome with desire for such pleasure, but out of curiosity. For as he told me, he wanted to understand how it was that I thought marriage would change my life, a life which seemed so pleasing to him, though I took it to be a kind of punishment. Indeed, his mind, which was free from that chain, was amazed at my own servitude, And through such amazement began to feel a desire to try it, and from desire he might actually pass on to the deed itself, and thence sink into the bondage that had filled him with such surprise, because he was willing to make a covenant with death, see Isaiah 28.15, and he who loves danger shall fall into it, see Sirach 3.26, for we were only slightly moved by whatever honor there might be in the office of living a well-ordered married life with a family. For me, it was mostly about the habit of satisfying the insatiable appetite that tormented me while it held me captive, whereas he was being led into captivity by his admiring wonder. Such was our state of soul until you, O Most High, not forsaking the clay of humanity in your great mercy for us in our misery, came to our aid by your wondrous and secret ways. 13. Continual efforts were made to have me be married. I sought a wife, and soon she was promised to me, primarily through the labors of my mother, who thought that once I were so married, the life-giving waters of baptism might clean me. She rejoiced to see an increasing possibility of this each day, observing that her prayers and your promises were being fulfilled in my faith. And indeed, both at my request and her own longing, with strong cries from her heart, she beseeched you to send her some vision concerning my future marriage, but you never would. She saw empty and fanciful things, such as the human spirit's activity brings together when it bustles about regarding things like this. And she told me about this, not with the normal confidence she would show when you showed her anything, but rather with a kind of disdain. For she said that by way of a kind of inexpressible sentiment, she could distinguish between your revelations and the reveries fabricated by her own soul. Nonetheless, the matter was pursued and a maiden was asked in marriage, though she was two years under a fitting age. Because she was appealing to me, I would wait. 14. A number of us who were friends discussed our detestation for the turbulent turmoil of human life, and after some debate, we nearly resolved to live apart from the business and bustle of men. We would do this by bringing together what we each might procure, combining our means into a single household, so that through the truth of our friendship, nothing would be owned by anybody in particular, but rather, would belong wholly to each of us, and all of it to all of us, just as it had come from all of us. We thought that this small society should be composed of ten people, some of whom were very rich, such as Romanianus, who was from the same city and a very familiar friend of mine from childhood. He had come to court because of the great agitations that his affairs had involved and was very interested in this undertaking, and his voice held great sway in it, for his great wealth far exceeded what anyone else had. We also had settled that two annual officers, as it were, should provide everything that was necessary, with the others remaining undisturbed. However when we began to consider whether our wives whether future wives or ones to whom the prospective members were already married would allow this the entire plan which was in the midst of being so well constructed fell to pieces in our hands was utterly dashed and was cast aside thus we sighed and groaned and our steps trod upon the broad and beaten ways of the world see matthew 7:13 for our thoughts were many but your counsel stands for eternity see psalm 33:11 And in this council you scoffed at ours, preparing your own ways, intending to give us food in due season, and to open your hand and fill our souls with blessing. See Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. 15. Meanwhile, my sins multiplied, and my concubine was torn from my side as a hindrance to my marriage. But my heart, which clung to her, was torn, wounded, and bleeding. She returned to Africa, vowing to you that she would never know another man leaving with me the son that I had by her. But how unhappy was I, who could not imitate the deeds of a woman, but was impatient about the two-year delay during which I had to wait for the woman I sought in marriage, though not as though I was a lover of marriage, but rather was a slave to lust. Thus I procured another woman, though no wife, so that by remaining enslaved to my enduring custom, the disease of my soul might be maintained and carried on in its vigor, or even in a worse state, into the domain of marriage. Nor was the wound caused by the removal of the former thus cured. However, after inflammation and sharp pain, it decayed, and my pains became less keen, though more desperate. 16. Praise and glory be to you, fountain of mercies. My misery was increasing, and you were drawing near. Your right hand was continually ready to pluck me from the mire and to wash me thoroughly, though I did not know it. Nor did anything call me back from an even deeper gulf of carnal pleasures, except for the fear of death and of your judgment to come, which even amid all my vacillations never departed from my heart. And in my debates with Olypius and Nebridius on the nature of good and evil, I held that the philosopher Epicurus would have won the palm, in my opinion, if I not believed that after death the soul still remained alive, with places of reward and punishment, according to what man deserved, something that Epicurus would not believe. And I asked, If we were immortal and were to live in perpetual bodily pleasure without fear of losing it, why would we not be happy or what else would we seek? But I did not know that great misery was involved in the very fact that I was so submerged and blinded that I could not discern the light of excellence and beauty that must be embraced for its own sake, a light that the eye of flesh cannot see, though it is seen by the inner man. Nor did I, wretched that I was, consider the ultimate source of my ability to discuss such matters, foul though they were, with such pleasure with my friends. And even according to the notions of happiness I then held, I could not be happy without friends, even if I had endless bodily pleasures. And yet, I loved these friends for their own sakes, and felt that I was loved by them for my own. O crooked paths! Woe to my reckless soul that hoped, by forsaking you, Lord, to gain something better! Round and round did it turn, from front to back, to both sides, yet on all sides it found only hard ground. But you alone are at rest. Behold, you are at hand, and deliver us from our wretched wanderings, placing us upon your path, and giving us comfort, saying, Run, I will carry you, yes, to the end, and thereto I will carry you. All right, so... As we referenced at the top of the episode, St. Augustine is experiencing some stagnation in the life of faith. Experiencing it makes it sound like it's something that's happening to him, when truth be told, it's probably something that he is doing. Uh, Stagnation is something, we're all familiar with it at some level. And often it's like, Lord, I'll do anything that you want me to do. Just give indication or tell me what it is. Uh, But that's usually an opportunity for us to reflect on what's keeping us from him or what obstacles we're posing to growth in the life of faith or to intimacy and prayer. And in St. Augustine's case, as we have come to learn in reading the past few books, the big problem is lust. And he, he asks himself, like, when am I going to find time to think through these issues, to dedicate myself more fully to the pursuit of truth? He's like, I got to compose these texts so I can sell them to my students. I got to visit my influential friends so they can work towards my social advancement. And it's like, no, you know, like it's time to convert. It's always time to convert. And there's no good reason for which conversion should be delayed. So Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, where do we look when in our own lives we have these obstacles or these hindrances to confront so that we can be more urgent about our
1: own conversion? Yeah. I like to insist on the fact that the Christian life is, is simple. Um, What Christ demands of us is not, it's not like a complicated equation that we need to sit down and work out and solve. You know, you read one of the gospels and it's kind of like, oh, This is what it means to be a Christian and a disciple of Christ. And that in no way doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties in doing it because Christ speaks about, you know, taking up our crosses. And that's not, well, I'll say it this way. It's easier said than done, of course. But there, as you said, Father Gregory, there comes these moments in our lives when we recognize that yeah, this is is not good good what i'm doing or not conducive to a life of holiness and then it's the question of like whether or not we stop or pursue a change in it and of course that requires god's grace his, his mercy His healing and that sort of thing but often the mysteries of what hold us back in the pursuit of holiness are not as mysterious as we might want them to be They're they're usually kind of right there if we take a moment to take an honest inventory of our lives and then it's a matter of like. What do we choose? And that might not, I'm not saying that's an overnight fix, just stop, but it's like, what are we choosing? You know, are we choosing to pursue God and virtue or are we kind of stagnating, kind of lukewarm there? I don't know.
0: Yeah. So there can be reasons for which prayer is dry. Uh, the Lord might be purifying us at the level of the senses or at the level of the spirit. Uh, but if we're experiencing this stagnation or even this backsliding, often enough, there's some unaddressed sin or vice, some ways in which we're just not being honest with the Lord and not being honest with ourselves. Okay, turning back to St. Augustine, you know, he'll mention the fact that he's got this career path before him, should he choose to seize it, and yet he's consumed by this spirit of vacillation and delay with which we have become accustomed. And he'll talk specifically about his life you know, of sexual intercourse, sexual intimacy, and the the anguish and the frustration that's at the heart of that. And so I think one thing that he admits to at this stage of the game, which is super fruitful for ongoing meditation and for our own kind of formation in the faith is that, you know, continence, which is abstinence from sexual intercourse, is a gift from God. (laughs) He's like, you know, if you think that it's just a matter of your effort, you are bound to fail. And it's in part for this reason that St. Augustine is you know, kind of presented to us as the doctor of grace, because he's wholly convinced that grace is necessary for us to overcome obstacles in our life, to move deeper into you know, the life of faith. So gift of God, how do, we, how do we cultivate this sensibility or how do we open ourselves to it more?
1: Yeah the the reality is is that Augustine is is right you know <laughs> shocker <laughs> turns out uh, right that the pursuit of virtue whether that has to do with you know chastity or continence or whether that has to do with anything of course it involves our effort our our working towards that we're not we're not sort of quietists or that where we just sit and and you know, expect things to happen in our lives. As we've talked about in earlier episodes, we build habits. But God offers us the grace to do the good, and we only do the good with God's grace. So for us, it's a matter of asking for that, you know, of cooperating with God's providence, of asking for the graces that we need in our lives to overcome the vices or the bad habits that we formed, and then cooperating with those. So when we talk about it as a gift from God, we don't want to think about it as if God just hands us chastity you know without our being present because god also doesn't violate or vitiate our humanity our ability to choose and to be free in this and he wants us to participate in it but we have to recognize that it's our lord who draws us into goodness so you know praying for that setting up a life for chastity in this case or whatever virtue we're pursuing yeah praying in temptation praying outside of temptation trusting that god's at work that's a big part of all (laughs) all of this really
0: it is indeed yeah, it's like when in the sacrament of confession, an individual might confess some sexual like sin or some sort of impurity. It's not like, okay, what you need is a technique or what you need is a life hack or what you need is a more efficient way of approaching the situation. It's like, no, what we all need is God at the end of the day. And it's only by... This life of prayer that we can crowd out of our hearts the things which currently occupy the real estate because if we try to pluck out all of those sins individually we will be exhausted and we will capitulate but if we invest in that relationship with god then it's just going to begin to take up the the soil of our heart and there just won't be room in the garden bed for other things to grow Uh, or at least they won't have nearly as many nutrients all right, cheers to mixed metaphors. Uh, that's my gift to you today. All right, uh, so in this particular passage, we hear then about Olypius. This is a strange meditation on the on the sacrament of marriage or on marriage in general. So Olypius is convinced, you know, as to the efficacy of the celibate state. He had had some, you know, kind of touches with sexual impurity or with sexual experimentation in his youth, but he's able to set them aside. St. Augustine hears that, he's like, How in the world? That is just utterly beyond me. At, rather than St. Augustine saying, like, what did you do and how might I imitate it? St. Augustine's like, I'm gonna attract you to my position, which is one of, you know, sexual excess and dissoluteness. And so Olypius is he's funny because he's like, well, maybe there's something to it. And so he's trying to, you know, Augustine's trying to convince him as to the necessity of sexual intercourse, of a sexual life. Uh, and that's kind of drawing Olypius to marriage, it seems, you know, like even though he he has some aspirations to live the celibate state uh so yeah just kind of bizarre fell causality rather than the elevating causality of the witness of the saints but here i think it it helps us to bring to you know it helps us to bear in mind the real efficacy of the sacrament of matrimony because you know it's common in this time to talk about matrimony as as cooling concupiscence like it makes it easier for us to deal with the very intense very vehement sexual desires which you know human beings feel but like we, we have a better appreciation now uh, that it's not just for that, obviously. It's also for a life of sanctity, so that a man might sanctify a woman by his consent, a woman might sanctify a man by her consent, and they sanctify the lives of their children by their consent. So yeah, it's, it's easy to judge it from a vantage of doctrinal clarification and the church's tradition, but I think that's, that's helpful to bring that into the conversation as well. But Father Jacob Bertrand, you wrote about this theme uh, when we were at the House of Studies together, too. So you have Lots of well-formulated thoughts about chastity. Your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I guess I have thoughts. That's true. <laughs> Good question. Uh, yeah, the, the reality is that often we think that sort of becoming chaste or living a chaste life of just, is just kind of white knuckling through and against temptations and those things that would lure us away from chastity. But truth be told, there's an integration to our humanity that involves like the perfection of our desire to love. And that includes our bodies. You know, we love we're we're creatures that are body and soul, and we love body and soul. And it is the case that the Lord desires to perfect those what we call typically the lower parts of our, our desires, you know, as opposed to our reason, um, our desires for physical intimacy. And we see this alive in this interplay between Augustine and Olypius and sort of Augustine's incredulity at the thought that this could happen, you know, but he learns obviously through later that living a chaste life is possible and that the sacrament of marriage is also the sort of niche for our, for human sexuality when it's expressed body and soul to be given one to the other. So, yeah, there's there's a real beauty in recognizing that growth in virtue here is not just about white knuckling and suffering through temptation, but like a flourishing of human love. And that's that's what the Lord's after in our lives with respect to chastity and lust and these sort of things.
0: He is indeed. So we'll hear, you, know, you heard in the reading section that the concubine, his concubine of many years, has been sent back to Africa. She decided to go back to Africa when she was informed that She would no longer be living with St. Augustine at St. Monica's provocation. But, you know, like St. Monica has procured a wife for St. Augustine, but he has to wait for a couple of years. And so what does he do? He just identifies a new concubine. So you see here the pattern of sin and kind of its hopelessness, its despair, this perpetual return to the same because we can't imagine a life beyond it. And it's interesting, like the vagueness of his approach to life or the irresoluteness of his approach to life is actually reflected in Monica's attempts to to envision it for him. So we know that she has dreams and sometimes those dreams give indication as to St. Augustine's future, but she just, she can't, dream or she can't envision him married. Um, she She's kind of projecting it. She's hoping that it might come to pass, but it doesn't seem to be blessed by the Lord because there's something else. And right as she's saying that, St. Augustine's describing his desire to have this common life. And you know he and his friends get together. The one has a lot of money. They're like, oh yeah, let's go forward with this. But then they're like, but what about the wives? And they're like, I just don't know if we can do it with the wives, whether the wife is presently present or whether she is futurely present, it's just, it's too difficult to sort out. And yet he knows that God is drawing nearer and that this desire for community for a kind of monastic life is important to him. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, final thoughts on this passage before we pass to
1: book seven. The, the thing that interests me is the sort of working out of how one like comes to God, even in a communal dimension you know not that like having wives is inherently opposed to having god and as saint augustine and these people around him saint olympius others kind of begin to figure out what it is that is like conducive to like a life of prayer and that sort of thing i guess from a historical perspective because religious life isn't really a thing at this point in history so there's not really a way by which or a pattern for Saint Augustine to follow so yeah the thoughts of like needing friendship and needing companionship in the way on the way to God is is evident but the sort of working out of okay what does that look like when like the rubber hits the road is also kind of an interesting thing for us and that's not to say that those who are married can't come to God that's not obviously that's not true there are many many holy married people but just historically looking at like they're figuring this out is kind of a, a neat moment in time
0: it is indeed And we will hear about that more in a future reading as uh, the first monks who went out into the desert become an inspiration for St. Augustine to, yeah, to advance in his conversion. Okay, that's all we have for you for this episode. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics.